Welcome to the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. Today we're in a beautiful garden here in New York City visiting with Paul Miller, also known as DJ Spooky. Hey Paul. What's up man, how you doing? Great, how are you doing? Excellent. Uh, it's a muggy, humid day in October. <laughs> uh, I just got back into town and it's crazy to see that uh, humidity still makes you feel like you're in mid-August. I don't know if you're in the audience you can see it's just just rained recently and it's very unseasonal for October. Truly, yeah, driving in we noticed it was 95 degrees in the car coming yep. down the Hudson. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, we have some things to talk about clearly with that in mind. And uh, before we do, let me just introduce you to the audience here today from the Why on Earth community. Paul Miller is Chief of Strategy for Global Brain and is a composer, multimedia artist, editor, and author. Paul is the first artist in residence at Google and the first artist in residence at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. His DJ Mixer iPad app has seen more than 12 million downloads in the last year. He has produced and composed work for Yoko Ono, Thurston Moore, and scores of artists and award-winning films. Paul's work as a media artist has appeared in the Whitney Biennial, the Venice Biennial for Architecture, the Ludwig Museum in Cologne, Germany, Kunsthalle Vienna, Austria, the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, and many other museums and galleries. His book, Sound Unbound, published by MIT Press, is a best-selling anthology of writings on electronic music and digital media. And of course, Paul, a lot of the work you're doing now is very related to the climate crisis and this global situation that we're in as well. And I thought I'd just kick things off by asking you as a artist, a writer, a musician, how are you connecting the dots to what's going on with the uh, global climate crisis? Well, right now is a really interesting crossroads for humanity. And what's, what's amazing is that on one hand we have um, you know, this year, 2019, was the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. It was the 50th anniversary of the creation of the internet. And it was also the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Um, so 2019 is a crazy year. It's also the 70th anniversary of the founding of communist China as well, which I always chuckle about. So um, recently in Beijing, they just had this huge march, you know, uh, sort of hyper-militarized uh, Chinese kind of nationalism thing going on. And it was really fascinating to see how China has basically become its own kind of ecosystem at, at every level. So when I say ecosystem, meaning political, economic, and above all, global, you know, they're, they're very focused on global economics. Meanwhile, uh, in the West, you've been seeing a sort of uh, Trump and the, the sort of rise of nationalism or white ethnic nationalism and other kinds of variables that really destabilize the idea of democracy. So what we're seeing here is a kind of um, a critical threshold of both democracy, social justice, and climate justice, yes. um, all of which are interconnected. So for me at least, it's really, um, the next couple of years are very critical kind of ways that the arts can open up new uh, ways of thinking. My motto right now is we, we need better critical thinking, and that's where I think um, the arts can really be helpful. And you're coming at this with a background in science and you collaborate with scientists a lot as well. And I imagine that we have different domains of thinking and, and really sort of rules of the game, if you will. 
and what I hear you advocate for in uh, listening to some of your recent presentations and talks is that we, we have to stay focused on this rational discourse as we're dealing with these turbulent times. When you say rational, I, mean, I actually am a big fan of the irrational. What's uh -huh. happening right now <laughs> I love it. <laughs> is um, the West really thinks of people as, you know, the, the myth of rationality was the foundation of modern you know, capitalist consumerism. But people are all hyper-consuming way more than they need. And so because of that, that they're driven by advertising. And advertising, if you look at the ecosystems of Facebook or the ecosystem of Google, they're data mining you, selling your data, and then creating billions of dollars industries. So what's incredible is that um, we really had a, have to rethink capitalism. And that doesn't mean... I'm advocating for people to all wake up and just burn their you know, money or, or, just, or switch over to cryptocurrency or whatever. But there's no silver bullet. While um, people are entrapped by capitalism as a kind of um, a consumption machine that makes people aspire to a lifestyle that is unsustainable for the planet. So um, your average American wastes something like 80 to 90 pounds of clothes a year. Um, and they literally just throw it away. Or for that matter, you know, you know, the average American is not necessarily informed about you know, global politics or if they throw away a plastic bag, the plastic bag might be there for 150 years, end up in the middle of the South Pacific someplace, etc. So there's these kind of layers of complexity and nuance that most people, I mean, I think people are beginning to um, realize that there's a deep amount of time that goes into any human endeavor. Um, you know, so when you go by, like you take the subway, for example. Yesterday I took the subway in from LaGuardia because traffic was insane and I didn't feel like taking a taxi. Mm -hmm. So I'm on the train reading a book, I'm whizzing past all the cars stuck in, in traffic on the, on the BQE. You can see in the distance this, there's this huge gridlock. And um, our cities aren't made for cars, for example, um, nor are our like, daily lives. I mean, but people. You know, this, these are, that's just one variable. Cars, uh, fast fashion, um, crops that are monocrops that sort of deplete soil. These are all things that go into the, the production of mass society, mass culture. Um, so these are things I'm trying to kind of get people to, to rethink. And how does that show up in your, in your art? Um, right now, I'm a big fan of what I call tools for critical thinking. So. When people think of art, they usually think of like a painting on the wall or a sculpture or this or that. I think a good conversation can be art, which is like what we're having now. Or for that matter, there's this kind of ephemerality that um, sampling and collage and DJ culture kind of uses as a basic foundation. And most kids are growing up with that kind of social media meets music kind of context. So SoundCloud, Spotify, and so on. So one could argue that it's like a massive social sculpture. Um, and those are things that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about as we transition into 2020, the year coming up. So, Massive yeah. social sculpture, that's an amazing concept. How do we, how do we plug and play with that? Mm. How do you see that playing out in 2020? Well, I mean, what's been fascinating right now is like, there's a term called murmuration. Hmm. And it's when you see it, like I'm sure many people have seen this, where you see an entire flock of birds switching on a dime and they're all following each other. And the birds are actually navigating using the Earth's magnetic field. They're also making a mathematical structure of the entire flock, you know. So if you ever see birds, they're kind of, they're flying in usually a geometric form. Um, 
so he, so too with humans, except our, our flocking mechanisms are social media. And you can quantify that and see how people relate, click, like, and so on. Which, of course, is what the foundation of most of these um, Amazon, Facebook, and so on. That's what they're doing. Um, but how is that art? Which is fascinating because, like, we're now, those are, we're in a data-driven society. And that data that we're generating and giving away for free is being optimized for, you know, machine learning and other kinds of things. So how you would turn that into art is kind of a fascinating moment. So I'm a big fan of what you call data visualization. Mm -hmm. um, so I took a studio to Antarctica a while ago and made a series of music composition pieces based on weather. And right now what I'm doing at Google is we're looking at the Saharan Desert, which is in radical um, transformation right now because of the growth of different airstreams over the, the um, Sahel and the Saharan Desert are changing. And in fact, deserts are growing. In fact, many, many people are noting that the deserts are growing to the north. So we're taking some of that weather patterns and turning that into um, music compositions. Wow. And those are, those are just projects, but again, you know, they're very specifically like data-based initiative. Yeah. So if any of our audience wants to check any of this work out, what, where's the best place online to do that? Uh, the best place is just my website. It's djspooky.com. Yeah. And um, there's different subset, sub, sub sites on the site. One is the easiest to remember is djspooky.com slash Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, but there's plenty of other stuff. Um, the Google project will be on my website in about two weeks. Great. Okay. Um, and because uh, we, we don't uh, publish in real time, two weeks maybe in the past, maybe in the future, we shall see. Oh, very right. Um, there's a great joke, I forget the stand-up comedian who liked to say, hey, someone came up to him and said, I want to show you a picture from when I was younger. And he pauses and he says, all pictures are from when we were younger. Uh, so we'll see how that all ties out, but we'll probably publish around the time that that um, is live on your site as well, the, the Sahara Project. And of course we know that there are now mobilizing at the local level, the regional level, the national level, even the multinational level efforts to build soil, reforest, and afforest all around the deserts, the Gobi, the Sahara, etc. Mm -hmm. And so as, as you're gathering some of this uh, mega global data for art and artistic expression, there are also folks on the ground working to halt the advances of the deserts and, and ultimately the hope and the intent is to reverse that. Yeah, no, the deserts, every, right now the star of the show is the oceans, because everyone's kind of really tightly focused on oceans and reforestation. But I think deserts are the hidden variable that's really um, going to be causing a tremendous amount of upheaval. So I'll give you a quick example, which is everyone's complaining about refugees, not complaining, but just realizing refugees will be one of the most destabilizing forces in the next 15 to 20 years as we move further into climate change. Um, the, the borders that, we, that were drawn by Europe in the 19th century, most of which were in Africa, you know, because of various treaties, or you had stuff like the Sykes-Picot Agreement after World War I that set up the borders of Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so on. All those borders are drawn by the collapse of the British Empire, and on top of that, the kind of European colonial initiatives that between the two wars. Um, most of the major conflict areas are exactly in those regions because people were put in nation states that were fictional. But then on top of that, if you're looking at Libya and its relationship to Italy or the refugees going through the Mediterranean, they're all fleeing uh, basically semi-failed nation states. So, uh, and those nations are semi-failed because climate change has destabilized and disrupted 
all of their abilities to grow crops and to be able to have a sustainable process that's local. So too with uh, Honduras and all the Guatemala, you know, a lot of the people that are fleeing to the border the, you know, in the U.S. are also coming out of Central America where um, they've had droughts and other things going in northern Bolivia. Um, a lot of farms have been deep stabilized as well. So climate refugees then trigger right-wing lunatics because they, can, they, they, they always need a boogeyman. So um, if you look at the 1930s in Europe, um, you know, the idea of purity or being able to create a, a project of, of nationalism, that was, that was one of the main triggers of World War II. We're right in that powder keg moment again, I think. If you look at what's been going on in Brazil, what's been going on in Central Europe, um, America obviously, Japan, um, there's these leaders that are optimizing for nationalism because it helps them consolidate power. Mobilizing so, yeah. hate and fear, right? Yeah, hate and fear, yeah. which generally, if you're, if you, that's where you're getting to a crisis of democracy, right at the cusp of climate change as well. Right. I'm just making a quick note here. So, I want to come back this this notion of this massive social sculpture. It's such that's such a an amazing concept and term. What are what are you envisioning, and what are some of the events you'll be creating in 2020? What are some of the things folks can be thinking about or looking out for? Mm -hmm. Well, the reason I use the term social sculpture is because we have to really think about um, impermanence and ephemerality. Those are going to be really fascinating mo components of rethinking capitalism. So generally, capitalism aspires to permanence, and market forces try and squeeze as much value out of short-term thinking, like they just so. Most people, you know, businesses and stuff, they're, they're looking at quarterly profit and loss and so on. But a social sculpture means me and you are creating a structure. And that structure, there's an artist named Joseph Boyce who was really popular in the 1960s, who's a big inspiration for me. And there's more current artists like Olafur Eliasson, who's really fascinating. He has a, he has a retrospective at the Tate Modern in London right now, uh, where he, you know, he's, there, he's been doing quite a bit of environmental um, activism. But those are just two different examples, Joseph Boys or Olafur Eliasson. But for me, um, it's like a sculpture is something that is a form, like somebody has put a solid object someplace, they usually put it out in you know, a pedestal. But if you're thinking about a different kind of sculpture, it's about an idea. It's a form, but it's a form of thought. <laughs> I so like it. That's why I'm saying social sculpture, because people can then create new shapes and new forms one of my favorite books when I was a kid was Edwin Abbott's book, uh, Flatlands, where this dot is in the middle of a two-dimensional field and then a sphere comes down and says, and the dot feels like it can see everything. And then as long as you have overview of that different dimension, so Edwin Abbott's book was called A Romance of Many Dimensions. Him, Lewis Carroll, you know, they're artists uh, of thinking. Like um, there's a couple other books that, that will change your idea about perspective. Um, like Douglas Hofstadter's book, uh, Godel Escherbach, it's a really good one. So I try and think about it as the overview effect of, of everyday life. The overview effect is about when you leave Earth and you can actually see the, the great blue marble in the distance. Uh, you realize we're all on one planet, there's no borders, and that means it's a pan-humanist kind of thing. And all those nation-state borders are just fictions somebody drew on a map someplace. Um, so that's, that's what I think 
in a better world right now. When I mean world, I'm meaning the political world, not just geography. Mm. Um, we'd have a more enlightened approach to thinking about climate refugees and, and how um, they destabilized quote unquote nation states. But it's probably going to get more harsh and weirder <laughs> over the next couple of decades because people are still they have the romance of the nation state like the board that's what the right wing keeps saying oh the borders this and that um but if you look at all what all these people are fleeing it's mainly the common denominator is climate change right i mean that's a huge component we, we had an interesting conversation earlier today with jonathan granoff uh who works with nobel peace laureates worldwide about the creation of the nation states in the 17th century in Europe mm -hmm. and he had a very similar commentary and I, I'm so struck that the digital communication technology is enabling a rapidly emerging global society where increasingly many of us whether scientists artists farmers all of the above are thinking about refugees and concerned about the fate and plight of people all around the world right now and we know that we're dealing with 60 million perhaps 65 or more million refugees currently the greatest number since the end of the second world war mm -hmm. our friends in the cia the intelligence the defense communities are dealing with projections that make that an order of magnitude greater in our lifetime yep quite possibly yep right and so this is a severe and serious existential crisis for all of us when you have that degree of dislocation. My hope is that artists like you and thought leaders like you can help plant the seeds, spread the thought forms, the form of thought we call sculpture, to help mitigate that and so that we don't end up in those scenarios. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is, a, this is where you're at a crossroads. I mean, I think our species is being driven into kind of like this uh, paradox because capitalism requires ever-expanding markets, growth of markets, you know, with the, you know, sort of addiction to growth. So we're always consuming more and more and more and more. And then other people around the world are looking at that, uh, especially China, uh, the American consumer model is like we'd need two or three Earths just to satisfy if everyone on this planet lived like an American. Right. Um, you know, but meanwhile, the geopolitical issues are like very clear. I mean, we're in a hyper-militarized culture. Um, most of the devices we use, the internet itself was a military system as well. So um, these are all things that we have to be, I think, clear and aware of. But if you look at any social movement that's caused a tremendous amount of change, I'll give one example, Susan B. Anthony and the women's suffragette movement. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of that. It was nonviolent. Um, Mahatma Gandhi, all these people who said we can't take it anymore, but they didn't take it into some sort of huge revolution of like Marx or Stalin or, you know, uh, instead they said we need a peaceful, nonviolent change to change the way people live. And that's again like shaping a new sculpture, shaping a new form. Uh, but the society itself, you know, is kind of. And that's where global culture really has potential to, to change away from the American hyper-consumption model. I mean, we're, I'd give us five to ten years if we really, really can't get that, you know, changing the course of the Titanic. Um, the iceberg isn't an iceberg, it's a meteorite, you know, like we are the, the meteorite at this point. Um, so if you think about the, the metaphor of changing the course of the Titanic, 
It's like we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic right before it hits this huge. Well, now the icebergs are going to be all melted, so we'd have to... <laughs> a different metaphor. Yeah, a yeah. different metaphor, but... Um, yeah, what, so, you know, yeah. what, I, what I find so compelling about the Titanic metaphor is that there were many people aboard that ship who were absolutely convinced that ship could not sink. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, even after it struck ice. Right. Right? Yeah. What does that tell us? Well, there's a couple of theories about that where having a belief that you know is false um, is fascinating, especially with the era of Trump and, you know, sort of the Fox News demographic that you cannot reason with them, you cannot present them with facts, you cannot say that the, every scientist has agreed that except for maybe 2.0% of like scientists say that climate change is happening and humans are the cause, okay, 98.9 maybe. But people still won't, you know, the climate denier kind of demographic, it's mostly emotional, yes. you know, they don't yes. really think about facts in a way that you can present a clear-cut case, connect dot A, dot B, dot C, you know. Yes. Um, so we need new tools to kind of bypass that demographic. Because eerily enough, um, that the Fox News demographic is generally over the age of 50, generally over even 60. Mm -hmm. um, and they're the prime Trump demographic that's, they're, they're blocking a tremendous amount of stuff and leading our species to extinction. Um, you know, just, it's, if we don't play our cards right, the planet will be here. When everyone says, oh, we need to save the planet, I'm like, no, I mean, yeah, the, planet the planet's the most resilient system we have. Uh, access to. The problem is we would need to save ourselves because we've then disrupted all of the patterns of the planet. Um, so these people who you cannot reason with, you cannot show math to, you cannot show data, facts, anything, um, you know, you need to hit in a different dimension around their points of resistance. So, you know, uh, one of my favorite things as we do the Why on Earth community mobilization work all around the country, we're working with all kinds of demographics, all kinds of people. And what I have found is that everyone relates to soil and to this notion of growing food. And we, we have memories of grandparents and great grandparents gardening if we don't do that yet ourselves again. And it's something, it really is common ground in, in so many respects. And it gives me some hope, and we have tremendous challenges, but it gives me some hope there are themes and memes we can be working with and working on that reach across some of these incredibly uh, challenging divides that we're facing right now. Well, that's where I think when people say social justice or climate justice, those are things that really are dear to my heart. And a lot of the issues right now are about this notion of um, what is privilege. Uh, so a lot of people will say, okay, white privilege is this, or the idea that most people who are going to be hammered by climate change are in the poorer countries that never produce the main components of what's causing the problem. Right. Um, so and the, and women know. and children to boot on top of that. Yeah. Right, oh, sorry. By the way, can I get another cup of tea? If you... If you thank be you. so kind, thanks. I really appreciate Let it. Let me take the opportunity to just thank George and Dusty. We're here at the Westview News offices in the village in New York City, and we're we're working, we're cooking up some collaborations with these wonderful folks. So stay tuned for that in the future. And I want to give a shout out also off camera is Joni Clark, another one of our global advisory board members for the Why on Earth community, as is Paul. Uh, DJ Spooky 
and uh, we, we have a beautiful and very diverse group of folks with all kinds of backgrounds, expertise, and ways of working on the climate crisis uh, on, this, on this board. And so it's just a wonderful opportunity to acknowledge some off-camera breaking the fourth screen for those of you who know what that means. Um, <laughs> and, and so uh, just a, a big shout out, George, for letting us do this episode here in your beautiful garden in the village. Thank you. So, you know, maybe uh, also since we're taking a quick pause, I'll remind everybody that this is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. And today we're visiting with Paul Miller, also known as DJ Spooky. Uh, you can check out Paul's work at djspooky.com. Uh, go to the slash Antarctica section if you'd like. There's a lot of different stuff to look at there. And I, I also want to give a shout out to our sponsors and supporters making this series possible and making our community mobilization work all around the country, all around the world possible. They include the Association of Waldorf Schools of North America, Beauty Counter, Earth Coast Productions, Equal Exchange, the International Society of Sustainability Professionals, the Lidge Family Foundation, Madeira Outdoor, Patagonia, Purium and Wele Waters. A huge thanks to all of you. And we want to give a very special thanks to all of the individuals in the Why on Earth Community Network who have joined our monthly giving program to help support all of this effort. If you haven't yet joined the monthly giving program, don't fret, you can join right now. You can go to whyonearth.org support or just go to the Why on Earth homepage, hit the donate button and you can join at any level, any amount each month. When you do that, uh, you will get a special email that I'll send to you with a code with which you can download unlimited free copies of all of our ebook and audiobook resources. That's unlimited, so you can share with friends and family and uh, colleagues at work, uh, all kinds of folks. So, Thanks for everybody in our monthly giving program and look forward to seeing you join. If you haven't yet, we'll get you those codes for the downloads. So, uh, Paul, which this reminds me, I'm just talking about, you know, digital and uh, ebook, audiobook resources. I, I'm so struck about this digital paradigm and I, I love the essay. Uh, called the meta and we're just snapping pictures of us taking photos of us taking pictures it's fabulous it's reflective infinite mirrors like an mc escher and uh, anyway there was this beautiful essay in the early 70s by william Irwin thompson when he was at mit uh, called the meta industrial village where he envisioned seeing where the internet was going he envisioned a global culture of people connected and communicating worldwide to bolster the civic institutions while we were also relocating in our organic connections with soil, with growing plants and trees, agriculture, food, etc. And I'm just curious with all the digital work you're doing, what are some of the practices you're incorporating as you're moving around the planet to connect in with the soil, with the landscapes? You and I took a hike in the Rocky Mountains not too long ago. Mm -hmm. Is this something you're doing on the regular as you're moving around? Well, I'm a big fan of uh, people like Brewster Kale, who's doing archive.org, uh, for example, where they archive every aspect of the internet and then uh, have that available for free as a kind of an open source initiative. 
So the gentleman you mentioned, William Irwin Thompson. William Irwin Thompson. Um, I'm kind of familiar with that essay, but there's yeah. so much going on that um, I need to actually re, re, renew my um, kind of uh, relationship to some of the work that he wrote in the 70s. Right. Um, I'm right. a big fan of Buckminster Fuller and the idea of systems yes. thinking as yes. well. Yeah. So those guys were around a similar time frame. So I'm more familiar with Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's but, talk about Bucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you think about systems thinking and the idea of like he had this phrase of earth as, an, as a spaceship my model right now is that a lot of the billionaire class are going to remote islands they want to build spaceships to take us off earth all these things that are like you know fine i mean on a certain level but on the other hand how do we get people to think that the, the mission to find a new place is on earth right um so yes. i actually firmly believe that we need to refocus some of the issues around giving people um a relationship to get out of what some psychologists call the nature deficit disorder. Yes. So, when say for example, when I go to Aspen, I usually go for a 15 to 20 mile hike. Um, I went, last summer I hiked out to Crested Butte, which is uh, one town over. It's stunningly beautiful, and then there's other kind of ways to renew the creative spirit. I mean, because living in New York, I live near here. This is the West Village. I live in Tribeca. Um, you know, even just walking from Tribeca up here was like three or four different neighborhoods worth of different contexts. But there's that, that sense of locality, yes. uh, being in one place that you still have access to in a certain major city. And I think the worst thing America did was invent the front lawn. Um, the front lawn as we know it is toxic and usually people are putting all this crazy, you know, weed killer, the monocrops, they make the same kind of grass. It's wildly inefficient, distribution of water. All of those things are actually deeply problematic for all the aquafilters around most major cities. Right. So once you get people living in an urban context, it's actually the greenest thing you can do. Um, and I'm a big fan of that. A lot of people, when they say, oh, eco-activism, they, they actually ignore the city, That's, which is kind of wild. Like, we'll talk about species right. uh, loss right. and other kinds of issues, which are all critical. Don't get me wrong, by the way, and right. we're out there. It's like, it's critical to say, you know, all of the above, but cities are going to be a key component to rethinking the human's relationship to nature. I yes. know that sounds paradoxical. No, I love it. I love it. But um, there's so many things we can do in all major cities to just make for both better quality of living and yep. use better materials, better architecture, better design. And that's where Buckminster Fuller kind yep. of really had a, a very powerful um, meaning for me. You know, absolutely. And the Winers community, we are now collaborating with a number of partners and allies in New York City and have a bunch of events that we'll be doing coming up later this year as well as next year 2020 and the the greening the permaculturization of the urban centers is one of the biggest opportunities we have i'm struck to note that new york city is considered one of the lowest footprint cities per capita in the united states and it's one of the walkingest mm -hmm. cities right people here tend to be much healthier and you notice that cognitive performance and things that go along with lots and lots of steps every day uh, also seems to be at a higher level than we find in other parts of the country. And we know there's science that now has been established showing the connection between walking a lot and things like cognitive performance and immune system performance and, and this is real. This uh -huh. is real stuff. Yeah, on average I, I do what I call the quantified self so I usually keep Today I was busy because I had a, I just got back into town and yeah. I was sitting. Like, you know, I don't normally sit. I usually have a standing desk, um, and then I, I'll have walking meetings. So normally 
what I would have almost suggested is we could have recorded this podcast walking right, through right. certain neighborhoods. You're gonna sense, time. yeah, next time. <laughs> um, but the urban context, because people gather, it creates a more cohesive social unit in a certain sense that allows people to really, um, I think, understand use of resources in a different way. Like when I'm in, um, when I visit other states. Um, the, the tragedy of the suburbs, you know, it's like they yep. really yep. wiped out a lot of stuff, but they made an entire aspirational lifestyle, right? Especially after World War II yep. with the GI Bill that allowed a lot of people to go to college. First thing they were conditioned to do is get a credit card, get a new house, probably get more and more into a mortgage kind of approach, which was a huge gift to all these banks, but at the same time then made everyone hyper in debt, right. you know? so. There's just amazing statistics about capitalism and resource depletion that are very clear about consumerism. Like people are conditioned to overconsume, but if you're in a city, you, there's a kind of a more tempered approach. You know, I really think that um, it, you really have to think about things in a different way, and, and that allows you to be more both uh, critically engaged. Like because, sure. say for example. Uh, when I arrived, you, you fly in, I flew in from Aspen, um, you can see all the roofs are painted black, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, there's going to be, that makes New York a heat island in the middle of the summer. Right. Because the optical quality of the black tar absorbs heat. Yes. Anybody who's ever been in New York in the summer, you'll know what I'm talking about. In Beijing, they're now mandating to paint the roofs white to help with reflecting sun. They're, of course, the Chinese are all over solar. I'm, I'm really intrigued with how solar energy and then there's these new carbon capture towers they're beginning to put up around Beijing because they have such problems with, with air quality. Um, in, in, yeah. in Denver, uh, they just mandated on all new commercial buildings living roofs for mm -hmm. the same set of issues. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, the living roof thing is really fascinating too. That's a whole movement and like same with um, urban farming. Yep. All of which I'm a big fan of. The main, okay, This is where I'm going to kind of do a, a reveal here, yeah. which is that I travel a lot. Right. Um, so sometimes people will be like, like Greta Thunberg just came to, from Sweden on a on a ship and said it had zero carbon. But meanwhile, they had to fly in her team, <laughs> and then when she goes back, she's you know going to be. So, but if you actually do a quick analysis of how much carbon is being put in the air, you know what puts it one of the largest components is actually fashion. Fashion puts about 9% carbon in the atmosphere, whereas tra travel airplanes and so on is usually about 2% uh -huh. airplanes. Interesting. So um, fast fashion basically is a critical dimension because a lot of people in the city will um, get into all sorts of new, I'm a big fan of what you call upcycling. Upcycling, yeah. Yeah, so these are these are kind of rough drafts, ideas, sketches of things to come. But, but behind, yeah. behind the camera, we have to give a shout out to Joni on this because Joni Klar worked with Gunter Pauly writing the book called Upcycling. Oh. Um, Upcycling. 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 So yeah, these concepts are really coming into vogue now and uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely tremendous to see how it's, it's emerging in places all over. And, and I'm a big fan of like getting people to rethink um, materials. Yes. Um, most of our buildings are, are written on 19th century building code. Yep. For example, poor and efficient, like air conditioners are terrible. Um, Number one on the drawdown list. Yeah. Yep. And we hear, here we are in behind um, a building and you can hear all the air conditioners around us. Yeah. Um, amusingly enough, because they use, America uses 110 volts versus Europe's 220. Um, if you've ever been in Europe, you used to have to bring in a big adapter and all this stuff. 
but you would hear a different hum because of the, the sheer volume of electricity going through the mantle of the buildings and the concrete. And, um, so there's certain things with quality of life where you realize um, Ariana Huffington is a really interesting figure. She has a new podcast about sleep deficit disorder, which is another thing. So you have nature deficit and then you have sleep deficit. And so many people's sleep right now is getting scrambled by all these weird machines we have around us um, that one could argue we are in this kind of, again, like a mental health crisis yes, very much. Um, based on how our, our disruption of nature. Yes. So what are some of your practices with your very busy lifestyle that enhances your health and well-being and, and helps you maintain balance? Just I'm, I'm curious because I know a lot of our audience uh, also has busy lifestyles for a variety of reasons. Curious if you have any tips or pointers or things that you might share with us. Well, I think walking and drinking tea are pretty much the best things you cool. can do. I love um, it. I'm a big fan of also fresh squeezed fruit juice. So I usually have, like I'm on the way up here, I stop for a second. and Yeah. I, one today, I usually have like a shot of wheatgrass. Uh, wheatgrass is really good for you. Um, and I drink a lot of tea. Um, so simple things. I mean, I know that sounds, some people are like, oh, what vitamins and everything you're taking. I, I take a little multivitamin in the morning. Um, yeah. But then, you know, just walk. Um, that's as, These are simple things that cost no additional money and cost no additional consumer yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, Tons of benefits. Yeah, and the benefits are very clear. Um, so I think sometimes we, we, in the era that we're in, we always think that we need a technological solution, like the silver yeah. bullet. Right. And there is no silver bullet right now. It's this, it's this huge... We are you the know, silver bullet. <laughs> some, well, some people are calling it silver buckshot these days. Right, like, right, right. You want to hit, there are a lot of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. You know, but um, half the battle will be deprogramming de out of the colonial capitalist model of 19th and 18th, 18th, 19th, 20th century industrial capitalism. Yep. Because, well, as things you were mentioning earlier about ebooks, things like that, they actually, amusingly enough, like someone, a lot of my friends have like a Tesla. And I, you know, Tesla, God bless, I love Tesla, no problem. But there, if you just do the math really quickly, like a back of the napkin kind of mathematics, the fossil fuel that powers the electrical plant that then powers the electrical grid that then goes to the Tesla <laughs> yeah. still has a component of carbon release. You know? And so walking is no, you know, it's you and your two feet. Um, and I, I, if I could convince more people to walk, I think that it would change the face of the earth right now. You know, in, in Why on Earth, we have a chapter called Walk. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we have a chapter called Walk in Why on Earth in the book. And in there we talk about people joining the Far Away Club and the Take the Stairs Club. Yeah, I'm going so, yeah, right? to Take the Stairs Club. So, yeah. like, if somebody's driving to the grocery store, if they happen to be in that kind of lifestyle, park far away from the door. Get those extra steps. That, Don't park as do. close to the door, right? Yeah, you're, you're already in it. Yeah. You're already in it. By the way, it's starting to rain. Yeah, and I don't want your equipment to get. Let's. Uh, um, do you want to keep rolling inside, or do yeah? You, do you want to? Uh, Can you take a pause? Yeah. Can you pause? Hold on, everybody. We're gonna we're gonna go inside. So just hold on. We're getting a little sprinkle out here, and we'll resume momentarily. So uh, here we are, Paul. We're inside now, and uh, nice gentle rain outside. Glad we could get in before that uh, really got pouring. And uh, while we were moving equipment around, there was actually a question that Dusty asked here at the newspaper about geoengineering. And I thought it was actually a very interesting conversation, quick conversation that we had, 
what what are your thoughts in terms of dealing with geoengineering as one of the ways we might help prevent massive storms and or deal with some of the other systemic challenges that we're facing? Well, yeah, I mean, geoengineering is basically, we are in the Anthropocene era. We've already done the geoengineering. But the human um, presence with traces of radiation, traces of all sorts of crazy chemicals in the atmosphere and so on, um, that's already begun. I mean, if you look at um, the Earth before stuff like Chernobyl or Fukushima, historians are now dating that they can find um, radioactive isotopes pretty much in anything that's modern. Uh, so we're all being bombarded with crazy all sorts of radiation from x-rays on over to dust from um, you know some of the early nuclear tests that's still circulating. Here we are in Manhattan, for example, where they had the Manhattan Project for World War II. Um, and if you actually walk around where the galleries are up in, uh, the, in Chelsea, with the Geiger counter, that's where they stored the plutonium and uranium. <laughs> uh, and Columbia University was on 125th Street, and there's still radiation. I mean, so the time frame for all of this, like Chernobyl is like 50,000 years, maybe Fukushima is maybe 100,000 years. Um, this is way past our, you know, we're, we're not thinking past, you know, 500 years on out. Most, you know, like even the, the climate models that people are looking at. So when you say geoengineering, I'm very cautious about that because the, there's a, a mathematical term called the law of, of um, unintended consequences slash the butterfly effect, mm -hmm. uh, which actually leads straight to what you call chaos theory and other kinds of chaotic functions in weather. Um, and so weather is a hyper complex system that they're now having, they're realizing it's one of the hardest things to quantify. Uh, weather is different than climate. Weather is short term, climate is long term. Yeah. So these kinds of things, like if we say, oh, let's just put sulfur in the atmosphere and that'll bring down, you know, uh, the sun's reflection point to so it'll make a cooler uh, temperature. Amusing enough, that already happened with a volcano that exploded in the late 18th century. But then that led to stuff like the French Revolution and the American Revolution because there was a tremendous amount of crops failure and other farm stuff that was killed off by the, t the colder temperature. It was like a, a little, a mini nuclear winter for the world at that time because of the sheer volume of dust that this one volcano had exploded in the South Pacific. Um, so halfway around the world, you then see a re revolutions, governments collapse, and you know, so on and so on. So these things are all connected. It's just, if you mess with one thing, it's gonna have a network effect. It's gonna, or a domino effect with many other things. So the easiest and most simple solution right now is pulling carbon out of the air, planting more trees, and then algae. Those are three things that are cheap, not that difficult to do, and have really serious long-term uh, good. You know, um, there, algae is one of those. I think it's going to be the stealth weapon because it pulls down a tremendous amount of yeah, carbon. Definitely. Um, and so does weed. Like if you plant uh, hemp, hemp actually pulls down a lot of carbon. Yeah, four four times as much as many trees per acre, right? Yeah. So. And we can build make all kinds of materials out of hemp to displace the petroleum-based versions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm totally down with that kind of innovation. So mm -hmm. that's just a different kind of geoengineering. Because right now, if you fly from Colorado to New York, you'll look down and see all these weird geometric croplands. Right. That are all you know genetically modified uh, corn. Yeah. Uh, because of the various corn subsidies that the government gives to the farmers. They have other kinds of monocrops from Monsanto and pesticides, mm -hmm. um, all of which then get into your bloodstream if when you drink water. or Now, there was an article recently, which because I'm a very frequent tea drinker, 
Um, they said there's microplastics in tea because of the plastic bags when you put yep. the, the dip. Uh, and I was like, oh, man. Yeah. Is there any way you can do <laughs> that? <laughs> natural materials. Yeah. So One of the guidelines we talk about in the book Why on Earth is when it comes to food and when it comes to materials, if our great-great-great-grandparents wouldn't have utilized them or recognized them, that's one way to be confident they're going to be relatively safe. And now we're returning, we're getting through this plastic era, hopefully, and getting back into biological-based materials to work with, whereas we would have been using plastics uh, for the last several decades. Yeah, I'm a big fan of biomimicry. Yep. And the idea is, like, nature has already given us so many solutions yep. um, that we just need to get deprogrammed out of the industrial 19th century model and then... Um, that, that'll be a really, I think, a big part of the idea of a solutions-based uh, approach to climate change. So, we, right now, we're barely scratching the surface in terms of solutions. Mm -hmm. um, I think because of the shock of how fast the weather patterns have been changing and the fact that um, we're having record floods, record storms, all this stuff that's going on like now. Um, Amusing enough, some of the most right-wing places in America are in the South, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. They're all going to get hammered with, you know, huge record-level storms. And my heart goes out to um, uh, the Bahamas that just recently was destroyed, wiped out with um, this one storm. And then you see Trump with the Sharpie, you know, where he just kind of draws a line on a map and says, oh, that's the weather. You know, that's like that. <laughs> Do you remember that? It was a oh, scandal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So these are things that we... I think we, we live in a fact-based world. I mean, and there's I'm a big, big, big fan of science. That's why I think scientists are amazing. I love working with them. Mm -hmm. But I also am a big fan of, um, these days, like my motto is, you know, reality is, is, has a liberal bias. <laughs> you know? uh. um, mainly because reality is based in humans' willingness to learn. Like, we need to be open to new information. We need to always be available to change because... A new information might come in, and then new and newer information might come in. And you, mm -hmm. if you're if you're mentally closed um, to new information, then you're going to probably have a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance going on. Yes. Um, which does that sounds very Trump, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so these are all things I'm thinking about. Yeah. Well, I got to ask because I'm curious with with all of your performances and your your shows all over the world. Do you have, like, a most favorite city to, to go to and to spend time in? Um, do I have a most favorite city? You know, I, there's, if I could synthesize some things from different <laughs> cities, like I really like San Francisco, for example, mm -hmm. but now with the housing crisis and the tech sector, um, you know, I'm a fan of even, like, the fact that it always feels a little bit like spring, you know, the yeah. cold and the fog. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of what's going on in Aspen, for example, um, Aspen, San Francisco, uh, New York. I, I'm definitely a big fan of New York. Those mm -hmm. are three places on earth that I really enjoy. Berlin, yeah. Beijing I like, but again, I could do without the pollution and the mass car thing. Yeah. But they're going to be a while before they... They're actually amusing enough. The Chinese are intensely focusing on electric cars right now. Huh. So um, maybe 10 years from now, Beijing will have clear skies and yeah. everyone's driving quiet electric scooters around. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a nice um, vision. 
But yeah, and I love Hong Kong as well. Hong mm. Kong is one of my favorite cities. So mm. yeah, beautiful. But I would wouldn't mind just picking a, a chunk of each of those cities and synthesizing <laughs> it like kind of a collage city. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, in a strange way, back to William Irwin Thompson's meta industrial village concept that uh, we'll have to chat about some other time. Um, I just uh, am so glad we could connect here in the city with your busy schedule and everything that's going on. It's just a few days after Climate Week currently. And uh, so there, there's a whole lot happening. And, um, you know, Paul, I want to make sure if, if there's anything else you'd like to say or share with our audience before we sign off for today to give you an opportunity to do that. Sure. Um, here we are in 2019, and we're at a crisis of democracy around the world. You're going to be seeing a lot more nationalist movements and people who stoke xenophobia, fear, and kind of terror for political gain. Yeah. Um, the best antidote is sunlight, you know, so I think mm. we really need to kind of rethink how we look at uh, both democracy. That doesn't mean, I think democracy is a lot more robust than we give credit mm-hmm. because it's much more about norms and it's much more about, you know, kind of accountability, except when you have a unique toxic cocktail like what's going on in the U.S. or mm-hmm. a couple different countries. But to have a functional democracy you need an informed populace you need people that read that care about facts and information and one of the greatest fears of the ancient greeks was the demagogue who was able to like you know plato in the republic would say why you know if you have a nation state um why would you would you have everyone vote on the captain of a ship if the if the guy didn't know how to make the ship go or you know yeah. um i'm just thinking of some metaphors out there but the problem is democracy requires a consistent belief in in uh, accountability and uh, the exchange that makes a robust society work uh, right now because of fox news because of all this right-wing uh, fake bullshit stuff um it's it's really a crisis moment and um, i grew up in washington dc uh in the i was born in 1970 and nixon was in office and i didn't you know my mom uh was a historian of design and my father was dean of howard university's law school so I just grew up in a household that respected information and made a point to have this idea of a civic discourse, like a, a place where civilization, you know, civic can kind of come together for a conversation where people will say, okay, we have facts, we have information, let's have a robust discussion and see what we can do to choose for a better path. But right now, um, we're, you know, we're in a polarized world right now, which personally I'm fine with on certain levels. I'm fine with the polarization because I... The Trump demographic is really causing much more harm across the spectrum than people are really giving credit. Like the libertarian stuff, the uh, white nationalist stuff, the hyper uh, capitalist, you know, sort of rapacity of the Koch brothers or Peter Thiel or other, you know, they're just pillaging, you know. So I don't mind people making money, you know, I don't care. There was a recent thing where Bernie Sanders said uh, billionaires shouldn't exist. Uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't mind seeing a more, just better allocation of resources mm. in a smarter way. I don't mind mm. if someone makes money and they have a cool invention or they do something clever and they make money. Yep. But, um, man, how much money do you need? I mean, <laughs> mm. Mm. you know, even if you spent, you spent $10,000 a day, a very, it'd be a very rare person who could go through a billion dollars. Yeah. You know. $10,000 a day is a tremendous amount of money, but that's a drop in the bucket. Right. If you really think about, um, you know, what a billion dollars is. Yeah, it's a thousand million, right? Mm-hmm. So that would take, what, uh, 
Many years. Many, 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 many years. Many, many days. Yeah. Just $10,000 a day is more money than many people on this entire planet have. Yeah. That's right. In their entire life. Yeah. No, I'm just using that as an example. Mm-hmm. So income inequality, climate change, and above all, social justice are all tied together. Um, and there's, there's very clear choices we can make to make things better. But, but the problem is, is we have a lot of inertia. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we can wrap up because I have to run to the bathroom. Is there? Yeah, yeah. No, this we can okay. we can wrap up right now if you'd like. Okay. I just, you know, Paul, it's great to have the opportunity to visit with you today. And uh, on behalf of the rest of the Why on Earth Community Network, thanks for yep. taking the time <laughs> and uh, look forward to seeing you out there at another event sometime soon. And uh, thanks for all the work you're doing all around the world. Okay. Peace. <laughs> the Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code whyonearth. All one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.